I quote somebody in my book, uh, the former president of Rock the Vote, who called them prescription drug trials for democracy, which is at once grandiose, but also like suggests what the problem was that you get at, Matt, which is like, we had no way of knowing what worked and what didn't. And it was fundamentally a storytelling exercise that the diff different consultants or vendors or operatives would claim that what they wanted to do worked because they had done it or seen somebody do a version of it in a different campaign. Like we should do a six piece flight of mail. No, we should do eight pieces because one time I did a county executive race and we only did six pieces and the other guy won. So the big question is this, how are candidates like us who don't have big money donors, who are spending money out of our own pockets to get elected, how do we get our message out? Raise enough money to win, target the right voters, and yet still remain true to what got us into politics to begin with? That is the question, and this podcast will give you the answers. My name is Matt Wyatt, and welcome to Campaign Secrets. This is the first podcast for Campaign Secrets, and I want to welcome you. The idea of this show came to me many years ago, but I didn't know that it would take the form of a podcast. I've been involved in politics since 1976 when I was five years old. I know it sounds crazy, but my parents would watch the news, talk about politics, and I just got just in, entranced with the candidacy of Jimmy Carter when I was a kid. I thought I, maybe it was because he was a peanut farmer. That's probably it. And his big teeth and how he smiled. But I thought his campaign was cool. I watched the conventions for the first time, both Democrat and Republican conventions. And I just fell in love with the, with the show of it, with the idea that you can go out there, put your name out there and, and run for office and win. And I follow politics all my life. And even though I was an athlete and, and all that in school and, and the last, you know, the, the least cool thing you could be is someone that was like a political nerd. So I didn't talk about it much with my friends, but all I did was was consume C-SPAN, which thank God for C-SPAN for my generation. I'm 48, and C-SPAN came along just in time in my life. Uh, I watched British Parliament. I watched Road to the White House. I, I just loved the whole process and the thought of serving. And so, you know, when I got out of high school, I decided I wanted to work in campaigns. And so after a year of college of, of – raising money, mowing yards and stuff like that. A friend and I, we, we drove up to New Hampshire from Kentucky and we were one of the first volunteers. I think believe we were the first volunteers to show up in the Bill Clinton campaign office. And Bill Clinton had just announced October of 91. This was December of, of 91. So we just showed up and uh, unannounced. And luckily after a few weeks, we were put on payroll and just got a tremendous education working in that campaign. And I've been hooked ever since. And, you know, I've seen over the years that both political parties don't do a really good job of training candidates. People want to run for office. And thank God we have a primary system now where it's not all back rooms and people decide things. You can put your name on a ballot and run for office, get the nomination and do that on your own. You self-select to be a candidate. And that's important. But what's also important is that if you self-select to be a candidate to run for office, you need to know what it's like to run for office. You, didn't, you need to know the tricks of the trade, so to speak. So this podcast is all about giving you advice. And it's going to come not just from me. It's really going to come from the political professionals that from both sides of the aisle that are out there. 
Uh, we've got some great guests in the first few episodes, especially. We've got Mark McKinnon. We've got Ray Strother. We've got several other people that are big names in the industry that have a tremendous national experience. But we're also going to talk to professors. We're going to talk to people who run local campaigns. I'm a school board member. I've been elected three times on the local level, so I know a little bit about that. So I'll be having folks on that talk about those kind of races, too. And in this first episode, I am so proud to have on Sasha Eisenberg. He's a great American writer, someone whose writings have appeared in New York Magazine, in Atlantic, and The New Yorker. He was a, a contributing editor to George Magazine. And he wrote this book a few years ago called The Victory Lab, The Secret Science of Winning Campaigns. It's really the money ball of politics. If you, if you ever saw the movie or read the Michael Lewis book, Moneyball, that's really what this book is about. And what's great about Sasha's writing is you could not know anything about politics and not care anything about politics and get involved in this book and not be able to put it down. Seriously. It's fascinating to go back into the history of political campaigns, into social science, and sort of marry that up with today's great analytics and the tools that that campaigns are using now. And it took decades before social science met up with analytics. And that powerful combination is what we're going through right now. And so there's a new way to win votes out there. You have to learn the basics of campaigning, but there's a new way to identify voters and to figure out how to persuade them and to move them over to your side or to turn out your vote. And is and that's even more important now because there are so few um, middle-of-the-road voters, people that could swing either way in the election. That's shrinking. We're more polarized now than ever before. So the, the notion that every vote counts is so important and so true. And so um, I hope you enjoy this interview with Sasha Eisenberg. It's a little long. I, I urge you to listen to all of it because every bit of it is great information. And uh, here's the interview. Well, I have the pleasure today to speak with one of my favorite authors, which is Sasha Eisenberg, who wrote uh, the great book, The Victory Lab. Sasha has also written for The New York Times, for Slate Magazine, The Atlantic, uh, also for George Magazine. If you remember that back in the day, I love George Magazine. Um, so he's been around for a while, writing about politics, being an observer of politics, and I believe he also worked in campaigns at one point. Uh, so Sasha, welcome to the show. Oh, thanks for having me, Matt. Great. So what got you really interested in this particular topic? Because The Victory Lab is, is a really different type of book about politics. Yeah, so I was, um, my first uh, job out of college was as a writer at Philadelphia Magazine, which is a monthly city magazine, a general interest publication where I wrote about a whole lot of things. I wrote about business and I wrote about food and I wrote about architecture and urbanism, but a large chunk of what I did was politics, which is mostly, you know, city, state, politics, Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. And I, um, one of the things that I think just comes with covering politics and especially campaigns in a big old Northern city is that um, you just spend a lot more time talking to people who do some version of field or voter contact than um, uh, than folks who are necessarily doing media um, or uh, things focused on opinion change. And you know, I think there are a number of reasons for that. Buying television in the Philadelphia market is 
expensive and inefficient for almost everybody because it splits three states. Um, your average city council candidate or, or um, uh, 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 even citywide candidate for DA or controller doesn't have the money to do that. So, you know, there's much more of a focus on mail for, for, for persuasion. Um, and then you get to general elections and the city's 80 plus percent democratic. Um, and so much of the game was about GOTV and uh, GOTV in a place where that is an, you know, in-person tactile experience because you have, um, I mean, your precincts are going to go 97% for, for Democrats. And so, you know, mobilization is this um, massive exercise. And so I, I had these years where I was covering politics um, where I was more likely to talk to uh, a source, a, you know, an operative type <clears throat> who wouldn't, they wouldn't be bragging to me about how many points they had on TV. They'd be bragging to me about how many vans they had. And um, what I learned pretty quickly was that that was the part of the campaign that they would let you see and watch. That if you were covering a campaign and you asked, you know, you're curious about how things worked and you said, can I sit in your candidate's debate prep? They would laugh at you. Can I, you know, sit with your candidate while they, um, during their call time, they'd laugh at you. Can I tag along when you go have a private meeting with a union leader? They would laugh at you. Um, uh, but they would say, Please, oh yeah, come to our staging area uh, for GOTV. Oh, come to our phone banks. Um, you could tag along with our canvassers. And there was this weird disconnect and it was the stuff that they actually let you watch. And if you were curious about how campaigns worked, and I was, and you actually realized it was a fun way to explore a city, you would say yes to those things. And so I, I ended up um, being far more exposed to folks who were doing field and voter contact and folks who were doing polling and comms, media related things, which I think is an inversion of the usual sort of reporter source dynamic. And I have friends and colleagues who come up in more conventional state capitals or other types of environments and their source network is just far more people who are focused on communications and opinion change and far less focused on sort of targeting and mobilization. Anyway, so this like period that I was with the magazine was like 2001 to 2005, um, which at the time I didn't have anything to compare it to, but I, I realized later had been this sort of hinge moment in the development of new tool, new knowledge and tools for understanding um, uh, how to do, uh, especially mobilization efficiently. And I, by, by some chance, um, stumbled into a presentation that um, a fellow from the Analyst Institute gave in early 2009, where um, uh, for the first time, I had known that there were academics who were doing these field experiments to measure um, like the relative efficiency of, of door knocks and, and phone calls, but I had no idea if there were people in political campaigns who were, not only were paying close attention to this research, but were running these experiments themselves. And that seemed to me to be this sort of light bulb moment for me that, um, uh, that there was a new sort of scientific thinking and all sorts of tools and data that made it possible. Um, and that, uh, that led me to write a story from the New York Times Magazine that came out right before Election Day um, in November 2010, 
about the Analyst Institute and field experiments and the sort of new, the ways in which our knowledge of, of um, tactics was being informed by uh, insights from social and behavioral psychology. And then that um, story led me to a book proposal, which which became this book, The Victory Lab, that came out um, right before the, the 2012 election. Gotcha. So you mentioned, you, you, know, you referenced sort of the hard science. There really wasn't a lot of science and experimentation going on because, the, you know, politics is a lot, a lot of uh, a lot of folks out there selling certain services, but there's nothing to really back it up. And it really wasn't until until the, the Yale um, political scientist, the Gerber Green, who who sort of experimented with get out the vote and um, in Connecticut and really put some of these things to a test to what's the most efficient. And that's when it came on my radar was when they published their work and it got out there and was being passed around because, you know, you can go to a mail vendor, uh, you know, if you're doing direct mail, like I was, you can say, well, look, you know, direct mail is going to return this amount for your investment or phone calls is going to return this amount. And it really shook up the political establishment, the political consulting world. And I think a lot of folks were like, I hope candidates don't get a hold of, get, don't get a yeah. hold of this information because it really puts the power in the hands of candidates. Can you talk a little bit about um, the Green and Gerber, that, that experiment and how it, that, that to me was in my generation, our generation really the, put it on the, um, on the screen for, for experimentation. Yeah. So there'd been this little, and I tell the story in my book, this sort of submerged intellectual history of experiments in political science. And there have been this period starting in the 20s where for a couple of decades, um, there have been some efforts from political scientists, especially a, 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 at the base of the University of Chicago, to go out and try to do random, a version of randomized control trials um, uh, with you know what we would now call GOTV um, interventions. Um, and that basically dies by the middle of the century. This idea that that, um, that, that political scientists are going to go out into the real world and uh, deliver messages or contacts, um, and then with by having a control group and and randomizing treatments, measure the efficiency of them the same way that you would with a medicine or a chemical fertilizer or something, right? And and there. There were good reasons for this. You get, you know, by mid-century, you're getting these large-scale election surveys, and it becomes possible for political scientists to run all sorts of correlations between voter attributes and, you know, their opinion shifts over time. So there's tons of new data that you can research there, um, uh, and you could do that, you know, from your office without having to go get your hands dirty in like big city politics, and also the people who ran big city politics usually did not have a lot of interest in bringing academics in and inviting them to test their, um, their tactics. And, um, it, and so the, um, the key innovation for these two guys, uh, Alan Gerber and Don Green at Yale in 1998 was they, they went to the league of women voters in Connecticut. They set up their own nonpartisan, uh, uh, GOTV drive, um, before uh, uh, the November 98 elections. And in New Haven, they random, they, you know, they got a voter file um, from the county and they randomly assigned voters into one of four groups. And basically a quarter of the voters got a, uh, a GOTV reminder by mail. It was a postcard with like an American flag on it that said, 
go vote on November 4th or whatever election day was that year. There was um, so a quarter of them got a phone call, which came from like a call center in Omaha that they hired to do a election day reminder. A quarter of them got an in-person visit from a canvasser, um, mostly grad students who were being paid to do it. And then um, a quarter were in a control group and they got nothing. And you could go back after election day to the board of elections and get the updated voter file and see who voted and who didn't. And it turned out that people who um, got the phone call had no increase in their rate of voting over the control group. The folks who got the mail had a small but but measurable increase in their uh, rate of voting. And the people who got the in-person visit from the canvasser had a significant increase, like several percentage points. Um, and they published that um, in uh, the fall of 2000. And that was the article that you mentioned that started to circulate uh, uh, widely. And you know the, the key insight from that paper was just this basic you know modal thing that sending a, a volunteer to knock on a door is more efficient than sending a piece of direct mail. Yes, if you're a direct mail vendor, you do not like that finding. If you're a phone vendor, you like that finding even less. Um, but it wasn't just that particular finding, it was that it opened up not the entirety of what campaigns do, but a large chunk of what campaigns spend money on to this type of measurement, right? And um, I quote somebody in my book, uh, the former president of Rock the Vote, who called them prescription drug trials for democracy, which is at once grandiose, but also like suggests what the problem was that you get at, Matt, which is like, we had no way of knowing what worked and what didn't. And it was fundamentally a storytelling exercise that the diff different consultants or vendors or operatives would claim that what they wanted to do worked because they had done it or seen somebody do a version of it in a different campaign. Like that is, we should do a six piece flight of mail. No, we should do eight pieces because one time I did a county executive race and we only did six pieces and the other guy won. Okay, <laughs> mm -hmm. that doesn't prove anything. I certainly don't know why your story about a county executive race should matter in our congressional race in a different state six years later, but that was the sort of folk wisdom that often governed our understanding of what worked and what didn't. Um, and, uh, and of course, inevitably that ties in with people's economic interests. And, you know, I don't fault mail vendors for thinking that, um, for preferring, for thinking that mail is good and preferring sending out pieces of mail, but, all the incentives of the way that the consulting economy works is that mail vendors get paid per piece of mail that they sell to a campaign. So they are entirely incentivized never to argue against their, their preferred uh, meth delivery method. Right. And, and, and all of a sudden I think that, or, you know, that paper awakens this idea of like, Oh my God, these outsiders to the political consulting profession can measure, uh, can call BS to some degree on the things that we claim or um, and can measure what we do. And so what you get in the next few years is not just Gerber and Green and their circle at Yale, but various, you know, they start pollinating a large part of the uh, political science discipline that studies campaigns and elections with their former grad students and, you know, uh, researchers who uh, go out and decide we're going to 
not just test one piece of mail, but one phone call, but two pieces of mail versus one piece of mail. What if the final piece of mail arrives on a, the Saturday before the election or the Wednesday before the election? Does it work in Spanish? Does it work in rural areas? What if you sandwich a phone call and then a piece of mail and then another phone call, right? And you're like within five years, every possible permutation of these things has been tested. Um, and they have uh, you know, a couple things in common, this body of work. One, it's uh, overwhelmingly focused on mobilization um, with registration as sort of far second because that is the easiest and cheapest thing to measure. If you can get a voter file, you can measure whether or not you, if you randomly assign contacts, whether or not one group voted at a higher rate than the other one. That's, that's something that you can do in the US. It's relatively easy. And the other thing is that these academics did not have to uh, get inside a campaign to manipulate their communications. They could, as long as they were not doing something partisan, they could do it with their research dollars and the university review board would not get in their way. And so the idea of we're just increasing turnout or seeing what increases turnout work. And so you had this big body of work focused on GOTV um, and focused on individually targeted voter contact methods. And we have a big body of work on that now. Um, yeah. And Mark Gribner, I mean, one of the folks that you, that I think is an interesting character in your book is Mark Gribner, uh, a Michigan political consultant who experimented with the get out the vote. And what he did, um, as far as I know, increased voter turnout higher than anything that's been tested, which yes. is almost like it's shaming is really what it is. And, yeah. um, and I, I love that idea is showing people their voting record, showing their neighbor's voting record and saying, Hey, I hope you vote after the election. We're going to check up on you again. And uh, talk a little bit about that. I mean, I'm sure that the Yale experiment sort of opened the door for, for people like him to, to, to do those types of tests on their own. Yeah, so I mean, you know, those first Yale experiments were all about mode of delivery, right? It was the same type of message, but being delivered over the phone or, or by mail. And eventually, um, once you ran out of all those kind of comparative effectiveness of different mode treatments over a couple of years, the big breakthrough was uh, people who were reading literature from social psychology or behavioral psychology about what motivates people to do things in totally different spheres from political campaigns, totally different spheres from voting. But you'd have behavioral economists who'd been working for decades trying to figure out what gets people to put more money in their savings account. You had you know, these famous experiments, I recount in my book, of um, uh, that, that Robert Cialdini, the, the mm -hmm. psychologist, did. Yes, you know, um, I talk about an experiment he did where he worked with a hotel chain to figure out how you get people to reuse their towels two days in a row so that you don't have to clean them daily, right? And, and um, uh, all these different experiments have been done and nobody had ever tried to, and I think the political consulting profession was, was in a way so insular and removed from other currents about what we were learning in society about motivation um, that uh, there were these huge opportunities once it became clear that you can go out and do these experiments to say, hey, let's just basically ransack these psychology journals and figure out what analogous things, what analogous behaviors um, can be affected by these small scale behavioral interventions and try to apply them to electioneering. And the big one is, you know, this idea of social pressure. Um, 
you know, and there, there's sort of these component parts. You know, one, the, 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 the thing that the Cialdini experiment showed was that, you know, for years, I guess we just passed the 50th anniversary of Earth Day, and probably for like the first 30 years after Earth Day, whenever uh, folks wanted to get you to recycle or, in this case, reuse your towels or do something, they would send a message about, you know, help save the Earth, do this good thing, recycle, uh, it's good for the Earth. And guess what? These experiments showed it was ineffective to appeal to your sense of what was noble for society. What really did work when Cialdini did it was to put a um, uh, a little placard uh, in the bathroom of certain hotel rooms that said, most people who stay in this room reuse their towels day after day. And that little nudge telling people, hey, other people who were in your position did this behavior um, uh, actually had an impact on getting them to uh, do something as simple as just not throwing their towel on the floor and putting it up on the on, on the mm-hmm. on the hanger right and and so there's this experiment i, I write about that todd rogers um who's now at harvard uh he was at harvard then he's back in harvard now um did where he realized that you could increase turnout just by telling people that turnout was going to be high right any um experiment any election you can basically uh take voting numbers and tell a good story about democracy or a bad story about democracy Almost always more people voted than in the last election. Population growth has a magical way of making that happen. And also it's entirely possible that voter turnout was lower than it was in any comparable election. And so he randomly assigned voters to get two factually honest descriptions. I think one was actually in Kentucky in 05. That was like the, mm-hmm. the, the gubernatorial election. We expected to have uh, higher turnout than any election. More people expect to vote in any other election in, in Kentucky history. And the other people got, we, you know, and, and go out, you know, we expect long lines at the polls, go out and vote. And the other people heard something also factually accurate, like the last election in, in the history in Kentucky had the lowest voter turnout rate in the history of Kentucky. Don't be part of this problem of low participation, go out and vote. And you can increase somebody's likelihood of turning out by a couple of percentage points just by giving them that high turnout message over the low turnout message. And Grebner was like the weaponized version of this insight, which is, I'm not just going to tell you in some abstract society-wide way that people who are other citizens vote. I am going to uh, uh, actually threaten you with something that looks a whole lot like blackmail. And so before the, this was 2006, a summer uh, gubernatorial primary in Michigan. He sent voters a mailer that said, you know, dear Matt, your history as a voter is a publicly available uh, document on file with the Macomb County Board of Elections. Here's your history as a voter. You, you know, did vote in the 2005 county elections. You did vote in the 2004 general elections. You did not vote in the 2004 primary. You did vote in the 2003 municipal elections. And here are your neighbors' vote histories. And had other people on your block and whether or not their names and whether or not they had voted in those exact same elections. And then there was this threat. There's another election coming up on August, whatever. Afterwards, we're going to send everybody an updated set of these letters. And um, this increased turnout among the people who received it by like 28 points. It also got Grebner death threats um, uh, because it is but 28 points. 28 points as opposed to 28. Sorry, 28 percent increase. It was a 28 percent increase. Yeah. yeah, right. 28. And, and, yes. And um, which is, you know, far more effective than any other single GOTV intervention you could find. Um, 
and the backlash was also tremendous, right? Mm -hmm. um, uh, and but it isolated that this is obviously a psychologically potent tool, right? I mean, I think the problem mm -hmm. most direct mail vendors worry about, which they might not tell their candidates, is that nobody's looking at their mail. Right. Or if they look at it, they don't read it between the mailbox and the trash can. Clearly, people were reading this and processing it, and it was affecting um, uh, their thought processes about this. And so, you know, the, the story there is very few, no campaigns want to put out threats to, um, I mean, that explicit threat of effectively, you know, surveillance and blackmail to their, their it's a GOTV targets, it's their supporters. Right. Um, and so what we've seen over the last 14 years is people trying to figure out how to channel some part of that power in a softer, more constructive way. And that has turned into like the most common treatment is now, Matt, I see from publicly available records that you voted in the last presidential election. I wanna thank you for your good citizenship and being a voter. There's another election coming up and I hope that afterwards I can, we can thank you again for your good citizenship, right? It's, uh, you could deliver this by mail, you can deliver it by phone or by text message. This, it's a far softer message. It's constructive. Mm -hmm. it, if you're a volunteer who's making these phone calls or going to doors, you actually like giving this. It's a, it's a nice script to go to somebody because you're thanking them and telling them how good you think they are instead of begging them to do something. Um, but it's still the same psychological dynamic, which is it's saying whether or not you vote is is a public matter, and other people know that can know this about you, and you will be monitored and judged. And it's just a much softer edge, and it doesn't work as effectively as the Grebner thing does. But campaigns find it a lot more, a lot easier to integrate into their programs. Um, and so, you know, that's just this great story of innovation where the 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 you know. And Grebner is a kind of give no fucks type of guy who loved, I mean, he right. loved, I, I spent a, a, a long afternoon with him in his office in East Lansing. And, and you know, I've never, nobody's ever been so gleeful in recounting the death threats that they received um, <laughs> as he was in that interview. And he loved the idea that it pissed people off. Um, but most campaigns are not in the business of pissing people off. And so, um, you know, the fear now among campaigns is that the social pressure stuff has lost its potency because it's so ubiquitous that, mm -hmm. Anybody who's in a possible GOTV universe has now gotten these things over and over again, and you're no longer telling them something that they didn't know before uh, that that their vote's a public record. Right, and one of those one of those folks that that sort of innovated and piggybacked off uh, what Greber did was was Hal Malchow, who you feature very prominently in the book. He's kind of the, the whole storyline because he goes. I mean, I remember him back in the November group, you know, back a long yeah. time ago. He's always been a little on the outside of the political establishment. He was like the establishment, but he also was not the establishment because he's different. He's a different personality, a different mindset. He likes to experiment. He likes to, he's always, it, was, it wasn't just about getting the next client. It was what can we do to up the game the next time. And so I thought he was a perfect sort of foil to using your book to, to have across there because he, he saw, he took what Gregor did and what, these other experiments did and softened it. And, uh, and you talk in the book about the Colorado U S Senate race in 2010, how, you know, they increased turnout uh, really was the margin of, of difference for Bennett to win that race. And then years before that in the Oregon race. Um, and so really 
figuring out new ways to target voters and micro-targeting also. You know, when I started politics, it was, it was the old neighborhood approach, the NCEC information. You get it, yeah. these precincts you don't go to. I mean, and actually that has been the case up to just like a couple of years ago. I mean, people still use that model to say, okay, you don't want to go to these precincts. You don't go to these precincts. When I think the technology and what you show in your book is that, yeah, you may have a precinct where some, your, your side of the aisle may only get 30%, but there are voters there that you can go in there and grab. Right. And that 30 can become lose. 28 or, or 33 yeah. really easily, right? Yeah. Right. I think that's how we won the Kentucky race, though. The Democrats won the Kentucky race this last time. You look, didn't win that many counties, but but how they did their targeting was they went into some of these places and you just don't lose by the larger margin, you know? Right. And, and that's no, and we were, my- and we were trapped. I mean, that, that the whole point of that is, is we were trapped into thinking in terms of political geographies for a couple of reasons. One is that uh, that's where political power lies and your surrogate and your political operation are going to think in terms of counties and districts mm-hmm. and such, because that's the elected officials who are there in the county and the p- county parties and county organizations. And there's nothing you're going to do about that. That That's always how politics is or government's going to be structured in this country. But the other reason is just because the data was trapped in that structure too. Um, that, you know, precincts are the smallest unit at which we have actual voting outcomes. Right. Um, uh, and the census is the smallest unit at which we have socioeconomic and demographic indicators. And so, um, it was, you know, there's, I, I also tell the story of, of how in the 1970s, the initial NCEC precinct mapping was an amazing story of innovation. Yep. Like, you know, and, and um, the, the mere fact of collecting all of that information in an era before, you know, modern databases, um, just gathering precinct level returns from local election officials so that you could map every jurisdiction in America was an amazing achievement in the 1970s um, and and shouldn't be under underplayed. But mm-hmm. by the late 90s, you were able to do things with individual level data that meant that you no longer had to be trapped in just thinking about those those geographies as your as your smallest unit. And there was but yet by then there was a whole establishment driven by NCEC that was locked into their business model was selling precinct data. And, you know, I, I mean, it, it is a, and, and so NCEC goes from, and you know, Microsoft or IBM are probably analogous to this in the tech sphere, mm-hmm. right? Where, where somebody is, is an innovator um, who comes in and then at some point they become the entrenched incumbent and they are too slow or resistant to um, challenging what their core business is. And, um, and so NCEC goes in 30 years from being this sort of pioneer in terms of thinking about granular data and politics to being really resistant to the idea that there can be data that is more granular than what it, it, it has to offer. And that becomes this tension in the book. And, and I think that that's, you know, this, the, the thing that's weird about the, uh, about the consulting, about the political industry is that, Campaigns don't exist that long. I mean, candidate campaigns don't exist that long. Ballot initiative campaigns don't exist that long. Um, state parties have surprisingly little longevity as institutions. Mm-hmm. National parties don't have a lot of longevity. They turn over every two to four years at the most. Um, and so, 
unusual power resides in consultants, vendors, sometimes outside groups or institutions like NCEC. And a lot of them don't have the same incentives to question their assumptions year after year because you're going to be around in two or four years and the candidates who bought services from you may or may not be. So why, right. as a consultant, why do anything new? You have, right. And as a consultant, you, have, you really have not a lot of incentive to do anything new or to look at it differently because if any little thing that you do and your candidate loses, that's what's going to be blamed. Right. Um, and I don't care if it's technology or something else. And so, you know, if you lose, it's bad, but it's okay if you lose, if you've done what everybody else has done. Right. And you, <laughs> and, and you can, blind. and you can win that storytelling challenge. Right. And, and absolutely. And, it's a candidate's fault know. or was it the right time or whatever. Exactly. Yes. Those are far easier explanations to sell than, um, and you're right. And, and it's a version of the, you know, nobody gets fired by hiring IBM, um, right. line. Um, and, you know, and there's also almost cartel-like behavior among mm-hmm. consultants and vendors who, you know, the, that's one reason not to rock the boat, which is, you know, that if you don't actually care that much whether your candidate wins or loses, um, then yes, far easier just to keep doing what you're doing and um, be able to cover your ass um, by not being to blame. But the other part of it is you don't want to, you know, the the, the thing that you're absolutely right that those Gerber Green things opened up, you know, these potential rivalries between um, mail vendors and phone guys, because Mm -hmm. now you actually had like a consumer report saying one worked better than the other. But those folks are also symbiotic, which is like, yes, that mail vendor keeps on bringing in his buddy, the phone guy into campaigns and that's going to be reciprocated. And as long as you know that you're going to get your 10% out of the budget and you play nice with the other people in your circle, that circle is going to replicate itself around a whole bunch of different candidates and committees. And so it's not just you as an individual win by doing the same thing over and over again, but your cluster of, you know, your little cartel of, of, of people that, bring each other into work together benefits with nobody sort of screwing up that arrangement. And that's a very hard cycle cycle to break, you know, and the one that I think the surprising pioneering, at least it was surprising to some extent to me was the, you know, the AFL, which um, maybe in the thirties had uh, uh, a reputation for being political in late forties, a reputation for being politically innovative, but it's been a while since I think that was, People think of of um, of big labor as as not a a sort of hotbed of innovation, but they play in politics year after year at the state, federal, local level. They're doing ballot initiatives. They're doing candidate stuff. They're doing IE stuff, um, and they're spending you know times it was hundreds of millions, but definitely tens of millions of dollars on elections every year and. For them, figuring out how to get three or five percent more efficient in terms of what they're doing um, is really valuable. And there are very few other institutions that are doing campaigns at that scale and scope year after year and know that they will be able to outlast, that they have leverage over consultants and vendors because they will be around for a while and they control a lot of money and they can start making demands on consultants and vendors instead of the other way around. And, and, and it takes um, institutions like that to fundamentally to 
I think subsidize this this type of innovation because you know innovation that we see in other spheres is kind of is being paid for by you know governments companies that are going that you know of long duration and occasionally investors who have a very or very patient and there's yeah, just not a lot of things like that yeah campaigns just don't really have the time to have an r d lab you know no and they and they shouldn't you know like right. if you're a candidate or you're the you're the manager or you're the you know candidate's law partner who is the sort of like you know conciliary advisor to and you should be focused entirely on what's going to get you the most votes on election day and do research only to the extent that it's going to make you smarter or more efficient at that. And paying a dollar during your, as a candidate during your campaign for anything that's going to teach you a lesson after election day is, is stupid. And like, mm-hmm. you know, from a candidate's perspective, malpractice candidates aren't in this to learn how to do campaigns better. They're in this to win and they should be, and then they should be in, then they should be interested in governing. Um, but, but you know what, who really surprised me in your book who, and I got a totally different um, sort of mental picture of was, was Rick Perry yeah, and at his ability to, his openness for experimentation and openness for bringing in these, these researchers who, you know, don't share his political background, but you know, he was open to doing new things to squeeze out a dollar here and a dollar there. And I love that story. And, you know, I wish more candidates would have that sort of openness about, about experimentation. Yeah. I mean, you know, one thing there is the guy who's going to run for governor for four times, five times. I don't remember how many, Mm -hmm. um, uh, and he ended up running for president twice. I think that they sort of, he, he had a fairly stable political operation. So it wasn't one of these, um, candidates who's sort of, overturning his his cycle of advisors every every four years they knew that he would be running multiple times in sequence and it's texas they knew that there would not be a shortage of money um and that they had an institutional interest in thinking more like a party or a company would which is okay let's have a research agenda for two years or four years because things we can learn now will be useful last three years from now and there are very few other I mean, just term limits explains a lot of this. Um, uh, very few other political figures who are in a position where they have that much access to electoral resources and that long a uh, sort of horizon to think about getting better. So that was a big part of it was that he was just sort of structurally, he could think about multiple cycles building on one another. Um, the other part of it was that he that he channeled his resentment for um consultants Mm uh into this sort of constructive project which is yeah he had every reason to be skeptical of these guys from yale um who you know were eggheads you know dissident intellectuals who didn't understand texas who were probably lefty um but he was also suspicious just of the consulting industry. And I guess in this sort of choice of, of, of evils, he thought that, um, you know, bringing in one to police the other was not a, um, a terrible idea. And, and, you know, at its core was uh, Dave Carney, who is, uh, uh, basically who was Perry's uh, general consultant, um, who, 
who led this and 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 Perry was a relatively easy sell on it. Um, but it was Carney who, you know, because he was a GC, um, uh, who was getting paid a flat rate, was just really suspicious of the people who um, delivered services, sold services to him, and was immensely frustrated over years by his inability as a buyer of those services to intelligently judge um, basically their sales pitches, right? Um, and, and he was out. He was in, from New Hampshire, right? Is that, that's right. And he still yeah, he still is a, based in New Hampshire. Mm-hmm. And yeah, outside of DC, I mean, he'd worked in the in the uh, Bush White Bush. House, uh, Bush Forty One White House. Um, had worked at the RNC. Had worked for Dole in '96. So he had he'd put in his time in national campaigns, but is now at a, a you know, it's not actually a farmhouse, but it might as well be in in uh, Eastern New Hampshire. I'm uh, sorry, Western New Hampshire. And um, but ended up um, doing a lot of Texas politics, and he's sort of the dominance maybe the dominant Republican political operative in Texas. He, he he's moved on. He now does um, Greg Abbott stuff and, and uh, 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 has a big role in the state party there and, and, and such as a result. And he, um, he just ended up, you know, he worked with Perry for, for 12 years and uh, 15 years and sort of methodically built out. We're going to try to learn this this year. And then next year we're going to try to learn that. Um, and he was in the opposition where they did do the type of stuff I, I just said was crazy for a can, candidate to do, which is, yes, we are going to do some experiments this year, and they might not tell us anything before Election Day that helps us win this year. But we're that is a useful investment for us because four years from now, we will know something about how television advertising works that we don't know now. And whatever loss we get, you know, whatever that costs us now, we'll have benefits down the line. Yeah, it also helps all candidates, though, down the road. If you don't have candidates that are doing those types of experiments, making that type of investment, you know, you, you're never going to have that that kind of research either. Right. You know, and, and this still remains a, a hurdle for uh, for academics who want to do this research, but you fundamentally need a campaign to bring you in, and it's a really big ask um, to say, we want you – almost by definition, not to contact people that you think you should contact uh, because we can learn something from um, from that. Uh, and I mean, you know, it's like, it's, it's not, you can, you can analogize it to the national debate we're having over, you know, randomized trials for hydroxychloroquine, which is if you're in a campaign, you think that everybody needs your GOTV piece. And the idea that I'm going to take a bunch of I'm going to take 20% out of my GOTV universe and not contact them to see or take a percentage out of my persuasion universe to send different messages so that I can learn something about what works and what doesn't seems really Mm -hmm. self-destructive. And there are ways to sell that to a candidate, but it is very difficult. And uh, and if you're, you either need somebody within the campaign to want to do it, or if an academic's coming in from the outside, um, they have to make a case that it's something that the uh, candidate will benefit from. And, 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 uh, and and having the sort of intellectual firepower to execute some of these experiments is not something that your normal campaign staff has already. Right. Now, your book came out in 2012, correct? That's right, yeah. yeah. Fast forward all the way to 2016. A lot of things have changed as far as technology goes and micro-targeting. 
Um, what did you see in that election that the Trump campaign did did right with some of this technology and that the Clinton campaign did right and maybe did not did not right? I mean, I think we saw the extent to which micro-targeting analytics generally is limited by survey data, right? I mean, at its core, any micro-targeting model is... Yes, you have all this consumer data and demographic data and voter file data, but the thing that allows you to make a prediction about how, whom an individual voter supports is survey data. And if um, there are still debates over the, the, the reasons that polls were off um, in, uh, in 2016, you know, some combination of differential non-response, some late movement that polls didn't pick up. Um, but if if surveys are not capturing public opinion, your micro-targeting models are going to be off. And, and by some measures, the Clinton campaign was a um, – if they had won, Counterfactual, if Hillary had won and I had been told to update my book after 2016, I would have ended up writing a story about how Robbie Mook built the sort of platonic ideal of a Victory Lab era campaign in that everybody up to the campaign manager was monomaniacally focused on following what the data that they had that their statistical modelers were turning out and that they did a pretty good job of channeling every decision that they made about resource allocation and priorities and such through uh, those modeling uh, uh, results. Um, Do you think they actually did that? I think they did. I think the structure of the campaign was built that way. Um, And I think they did. uh, I think they did do that pretty rigorously. Um, I think for, as a sort of managerial story, it was pr- it's pretty impressive. Um, the problem is if you have only one, and, and you know, if you have only one source of data and that data is off or wrong in certain ways in certain places, um, that's going to lead you, you know, their final uh, numbers in Wisconsin had her winning like by 5.6 percentage points or something like that. It was close to six points mm-hmm. they had her up. So they made a whole bunch of tactical decisions that were predicated mm-hmm. on the idea that they were up six points. And I think the actual integration of strategy, management, tactics, decision-making probably was something that you would look at from a, a, a managerial case study perspective is, is pretty admirable. Um, and the things that come up in, you know, there's a quite a good book that, um, uh, Amy Parnes and John Allen wrote called Shattered about the campaign. Yes. Great. Uh, you know, and, and um, they have these amazing anecdotes in there of, uh, I think it was in Michigan, you know, Debbie Dingle calling Bill Clinton because she had just been at some UAW hall in, in uh, you know, in Macomb County. And she saw, you know, people just weren't that into Hillary. And so she calls Bill and says, you have to do something. We're going to lose Michigan. Um, And that's sort of hell, you know, and, and basically the decision-making structure of the campaign up to Robbie Mooks sort of like throws her hands up and say, well, our data tells us that's not a problem. 
Um, and thus they, you know, don't send a candidate in there until the night before. They're deploying surrogates elsewhere. They're, you know, we know the litany of things. Um, it kind of it kind of reminds me of the, sort of the story of but I you know I believe in machine learning I believe in using um, you know what the data gives you and, and sort of trusting that you know machines machine learning is, is more intelligent than humans obviously but it's kind of like with Uber um, with with sort of their their prices that fluctuate during um, during high occupancy times and low occupancy times you know in France when they had a shooting um, a few years ago. Um, in Paris and the prices for, for Uber drivers like skyrocketed because everybody was jump trying to get an Uber yeah. uh, out of the downtown area. <laughs> and there was huge backlash to that because, you know, there was a shooting going on and now you're gouging customers to try to get a ride. Right. And uh, so they had to adjust that and say, okay, well, you know, obviously this, you know, the, the drivers had could override that and, and yeah. locally that country could override, override those kind of decisions. And I think as great as technology is as great, you know, as we can make these advances, it still takes a human to take that, some of this data and this information and say, you know, someone like Bill Clinton, who is a master politician from Arkansas, you know, I guarantee you would say, you know, we ought to listen to the folks on the ground. Yeah. Uh, more than anything no, and, else. And, and arguably, you know, the story of the, 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 the heroic narrative that I tell in my book is largely people, skeptical, scientific-minded people uh, who are the backlash to a politics that was some for generations, some version of Debbie Dingell goes into a UAW hall and then calls Bill Clinton. And then you decide, based on that, mm-hmm. let's put twice as many points Right. into Grand Rapids um, uh, or let's reroute our mail. Um, and that seemed like an incredibly un... Uh, scientific sort of... Unscientific, rash, yeah. you know, self-destructive, rash way mm-hmm. of doing things and that we had better ways of doing things. And, and, um, and, and I think your point is absolutely right. Like, the, the challenge, though, for campaigns is what does the Uber local override look like from a managerial perspective? Yeah, It's like, yes, a world where you have only one source of – like, if, if you gave me a choice, you could either have – make all your campaign decisions informed by the last UAW hall that Debbie Dingell was in and whichever member of the Clinton family she can get on the phone or <laughs> – right. or, 10,000 survey calls a week that are being informed by thousands of other variables. I would take the latter, but I think we've seen that like a world in which you have only one or only the other is going to lead to some under particular circumstances, whether it's a shooting or it's Donald Trump and the Comey letter and a million other things that, that this is not well suited for, for every circumstance. But from a, if you're a campaign manager, the question is, yes, you need, you need you want that hard data. Maybe you want multiple sources of hard data if you have the resources, like in a presidential campaign, that are bumping off, bouncing off each other. Maybe you want some internal transparency so that people actually can question some of the assumptions that underlie the data. But then also, yeah, you do want the human intelligence. You want a channel for your state director to be saying, you know, maybe this is just anecdotal, but we're getting a lot of indications that the models aren't. You know, we're sending people to doors and that should be 80% support and we're only getting 60% positive IDs. 
um, and make sure that that complaint is not getting dismissed as you're old fashioned, you don't understand the science, you don't get the numbers, but also you're not, we're, we're not gonna throw out our whole campaign plan for the state because one state director got a batch of numbers that they didn't like, right? And figuring out how in the context of a campaign that has to make very important decisions very quickly, you kind of stovepipe those things up to and balance them against each other, and make decisions is going to is arguably I think the biggest long-term intellectual challenge in campaigns because we'll have more and more types of data, and yet all of the sort of soft reporting isn't going to go away. And there are new types of soft reporting, like boy, but the you know the social listening tells us that's not working. And how do you right. weigh right. social listening against Debbie Dingle against mm-hmm. your models, right? And that's there's not an obvious answer to that. Um, and, but it's, you know, that I think anyway, that that's one story of the Clinton campaign. The story of the Trump campaign is, is, you know, uh, I, I guess one of the meta narratives of my book is a move away from mass communication and towards targeted, highly targeted communication and all, you know, simultaneously a shift in the balance of campaigns from, you know, all relative, but more mobilization at the expense of persuasion. And that's because our electorate's more polarized because we know we have much better ideas how to do GOTV and registration because you can do individually targeted contacts and don't have to do, you know, as you were talking about, right, whole counties in or out of your your campaign plan. Um, And Donald Trump ran this 100% persuasion focused mass media exercise of a type that seemed better suited for the 19th century than for the 21st century. And I'm not, you know, I wouldn't say that he won because of that. I wouldn't say that he, you know, won despite that. Um, But I'm also not convinced that there are many other candidates who could, could or should replicate that as a series of like best practices. Um, because there are a whole lot of other things in the sort of Trump formula that um, aren't really accounted for in that, that that, um, that clearly benefited the campaign he was running in 2016. Yeah, and do you think the, the new way of doing the sort of micro-target makes it less transactional for campaigns? Or, you know, like most of us right now, we don't, we don't mind seeing ads uh, from, you know, online that targets us because of things we put on, on search you know, engines before. And so we were getting individualized ads that pop up based on our interest. And that seems to be the way it's going with politics is that it's more individualized, more than just, you know, mass advertised. And do you think that's better for democracy or? or Yeah, you know, no, I mean, I think it's uh, two things. One, I think it's better for democracy, but also I think I was in a way naive when I wrote that book. And so by and large, I think that, look, campaigns overwhelmingly are doing two things. They are looking for people who already support them and trying to encourage them to do what we all agree is uh, sort of good citizen behavior, which is registering to vote and turning out to vote. Um, that's a big chunk of what they do. And then the other chunk of what they do is go to people 
who are already going to vote and try to give them information that helps them make a decision. And to the extent that that is more targeted, meaning more of your resources are actually going to effective ways of turning non-voters into voters, or you are going to voters with messages that are likely to resonate with them, they're on issues that you have reasonably they care about, they are timed better to when those voters are going to make decisions, they um, are responsive to those voters' interests or concerns, I think that's good. Like, you know, mm-hmm. I, I don't think it is hard for me to be So part of the answer to, you know, your question and every question is like compared to what, right? And if compared to what is the 1970s and 80s when statewide and uh, uh, national campaigns were buying three networks and putting the most broadly acceptable, which mostly means broadly inoffensive ads uh, uh, up on those networks because every audience basically was everybody. Um, uh, I don't think anybody looks at that as the glory age for great civic communication, right? We talked about those ads as like really lowest common denominator. They were either like vicious attack ads or they were morning in a America, which for all its aesthetic merits, I'm not sure was like, you know, a great contribution to, you know, the knowledge base of the American populace and going to decide its leaders. Um, uh, great ad though, were, I mean. It's, oh, absolutely it's great ad. ad. <laughs> but part of what makes it great is it doesn't say anything, right? Like, mm-hmm. I mean, it, it, it's incredibly emotionally resonant and, and capture the message, but is it, is it making our electorate better informed or make helping them make better decisions mm. i'm i'm not i think you'd have right. a tough case to make um and so you know and by and large what that meant was that candidates didn't discuss difficult issues in ads because there was a really high chance that they were getting in front of somebody who disagreed with you on that um and if better targeting for persuasion communication means you are yeah you will tell people what your feelings are about tariffs because you have some sense of here's a community of interest that cares about tariffs and I'm going to talk to them about tariffs and not just how much I like the flag. I think it's probably a good thing. Um, mm-hmm. uh, you know, what I didn't account for in 2012 was I did through the reporting of this book often ask folks sort of at the end of an interview, Hey, we just talked for an hour about, you know, the, all these neat things that you know how to do that improve um, your ability to to turn a non-voter into a voter. Now, like, tell me all the dark stuff you figure out that you're using to turn yeah. voters into non-voters. Um, and I don't think people were like lying to me. They like they were not researching demobilization, and that's not just because some of them had you know, or, or 501c3s that have nonprofit and 501c4s that have nonprofit status that, you know, would, would, would get in, in trouble if they did that or, or because they're university professors that have IRBs because the issues that by and large campaigns have plenty of their own targets to communicate with. The problem is never, we don't have enough. The problem is very rarely, let me say, Matt, like that we do not have enough turnout or persuasion targets it's that we don't have enough resources to engage with the ones we have effectively. 
And the reasonable assumption is that we can be a far better messenger as a campaign or a party or an outside group um, talking with uh, either, you know, mobilizing our own supporters with for whom we, we should be a credible messenger or going to people who are, you know, already sort of part of the process and using what we know about what they care about to, to try to uh, change their opinion. And that that is the idea that you would go out and look at the other side's supporters as reverse GOTV targets. Um, it's just sort of, aside from the ethical issues, um, it just seems inefficient. Like, I don't know, you can send people, you have a bunch of door knockers and you think the best use of their time the the Saturday before the election is to knock on doors of your uh, opponent supporters and tell them not to vote. Like, I don't know. I would just use those people to knock on. If, if I have all that data and expertise, I would just send them to knock on the supporters of, you know, my candidate. Um, and so like, I didn't see anybody doing this stuff and it did not seem to me to make any sense that you would have large scale. Clearly there are people who are, who use the law and to try to disenfranchise Voters um, have not been in the least bit naive about that. There are these small-scale examples, obviously, of you know, flyers on a windshield in a church parking lot that tell you, you know, a, you know that the election got rescheduled for Wednesday. Um, there have been you know robocalls that go to certain populations. I I, I saw very little evidence. Those are all fairly low-fi, low-tech, unsophisticated tools. Um, and the thing I, you know, I, I wrote a story with Josh Green, who was my colleague at Bloomberg Politics at the time in the uh, fall of 2016 about Trump's digital operation. And we spent a few days in in, um, in uh, San Antonio with Brad Parscale and the sort of operation mm -hmm. that he had built there. And we quote somebody who I was anonymous, but I think it's a senior campaign official who was... Um, who showed us these digital ads that they had made that they were targeting at uh, some combination of young, I think young lefty voters and, and voters of color in certain areas mm -hmm. that were, that they described as, you know, efforts to demo, to turn them off from voting for Hillary. And the description that we got was like, I thought sort of unsophisticated. It was like, these are fundamentally persuasion ads. And they thought that they were going to get these people not to vote by showing them these sort of like anti-Hillary persuasion ads. Seemed more reasonable if they would send them to a third party. Like it didn't really even seem that, that well thought out to me as a tactic um, because you're raising the salience of the election to them. Um, they're, they're not people who seem like likely to, I don't think these 21 year old black guys were likely to vote for Trump under any circumstances. Um, but it was the first time that I had encountered a person in the political, in you know, in a decision-making role in a campaign or party committee who had resources and some capacity and was saying, thinking about cutting edge ways to discourage people from voting. And I probably had just been naive about the extent to which I'm still not convinced that they did that stuff or did it in 
But you look at Pennsylvania and Milwaukee and Detroit, and it clearly African-American turnout in certain demographics, like in age groups, went down considerably. And of course, Obama's not on the ticket. That could be one explanation. But clearly where they did these targeted ads to suppress, you know, in the campaign, we were talking about half a point here, half a point there. If you could decrease your other, the other sides, half a point, and you can increase, uh, you know, white voters in certain rural areas in Pennsylvania's by five points, which they did or more, then then that's how you you win Pennsylvania. You know, that's how you win Wisconsin and Michigan. I I think they had an effect. I just don't know how, how much. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I do think we have a tendency. I mean, I, I think you're. I mean, yes, all this stuff in small margins. I, I'm not. I mean, the thing about reporting on the Trump world, and this was as true in the campaign in 2016 as I think it is, you know, reporting on White House briefings today is. It is really hard to disentangle the bluster from yeah. the actual program, and I, um, I'm not convinced uh you know in the nature of digital advertising at least certainly then being totally non-transparent um i'm just not convinced that they you know actually spent the money in a significant way that campaign was very stingy about anything that did not raise money build a list or immediately gratify donald trump's ego and um, sending and it could be something. It could be something to try to get into the heads of the opponent. You know, like Carl yes. Rove and others do say, "Oh, it's really about this." When it's really this, you know. Yes, and and so you know, I'm, I'm skeptical of, and I do think you know this has been become more true in the sort of Russia, in the conversation mm-hmm. about about Russian intervention. But I think it's worth. I think people who are who are around politics, whether in your role or my role are appropriately, not skeptical, but we just know how difficult it is to move voters' opinions or attitudes with a piece of mail or a TV ad or a rally or a digital ad. You know, we know this empirically. We know it from experience. It's, you know, you you can you can move public opinion a little bit for a short period of time. And um, that's sort of the best case scenario for what advertising does, right? Um, and then the same people who are appropriately skeptical that, that political ads have any effect here that the Russians spent $100,000 on Facebook and it's like, oh no, they bought the election. And I think we should just be like <laughs> as skeptical of negative interventions right. as we are of positive ones. And I'm not sure that even if the Trump campaign spent a few hundred thousand dollars, you know, um, targeted it at some black folks in Milwaukee that in that media environment where you had a major Senate race in addition to the presidential and everything else that a couple of impressions of Hillary Clinton saying super predators was magically going to do something that, you know, conventional advertising, positive advertising couldn't. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. So what are you, uh, what are you working on right now? Um, I've been working for this, um, uh, uh, organization called the Recount, where I've been, I was doing sort of explainery videos during the Democratic primaries, trying to translate some of this into a slightly different format. Um, and then we are, can't say any more than this, but we're working on a um, sort of new iteration of that that'll um, for the general. That also I think will kind of deal with how campaigns are changing because of the coronavirus. So mm-hmm. um, uh, all the sort of campaign mechanics that are 
uncertain and in flux um, in really interesting, challenging ways, some of which create new opportunities for campaigns, some of which, you know, obviously really hobble campaigns. And I think a lot of questions that try to deal with it are like what goes back to normal afterwards and what, um, you know, uh, if, if we go through a whole campaign year where people aren't opening field offices at all because there's never a moment where it seems to make sense to open a field office in certain places, you know, what does 2022 look like? Do, you know, if you have a whole generation, a whole cohort of, of field organizers who have figured out how to train, to recruit and train uh, and track their volunteers while working from home, is there going to be a return to renting storefronts when this is over. So something that kind of takes stock of where we are now and where we're going. Then the other thing is I have a book that's coming out in September that I've been working on for eight years now, which is a history of the battles over uh, gay marriage in the United States. Oh, great. So a big political legal history of the whole arc of the marriage debate. And it'll, um, it's called The Engagement and it'll be out September 1st. Look forward to, to reading that and seeing when it comes out. And Sasha Eisenberg, thank you very much for being on this show. I think that you know what you have to say and, and the research that, that you've done to go into this book uh, continues to help candidates. And uh, I think that uh, every single person running for office ought to pick up a copy of it and read it or get the audio book. I've got both because there's a lot to be learned. And, I, and if, even if it's just opening your mind as a candidate, to doing new things. And I think this is the time right now, you know, if you want to get on Facebook, you just little things like Facebook live and other little things that you would not have done otherwise um, because of the situation we have right now. Uh, just know that, that, you know, those that experiment, those that go out there and try new things often win and change politics. So thank you very much, Sasha. Thanks, Matt. Good luck with the podcast. No problem. Thank you. Want to learn more campaign secrets? Want to learn how to start raising money for your campaign, even during these uncertain and unpredictable times? You want to know how to craft a winning campaign message? Then you need my free ebook, Campaign Fundraising Secrets. Head on over to CampaignFundraisingSecrets.com now. Put in your name and email and you can download a copy of this easy to read and implement guide. While you're there, sign up for your free seven day campaign secrets challenge. They'll walk you through how to campaign in the middle of this crisis, creating your fundraising system, crafting a great campaign message, and much, much more. I hope you learned a lot today, and I'll see you next time on the Campaign Secrets Podcast. Take care.